Greetings, folks. You're listening to me again, and I uh, I did that thing where I push one button and I forget the, to push the other button. So I was like, I was a few seconds late. I was I was de- I was waylaid and delayed. Sorry, sorry about that. Welcome to the public record. This is Joe Public. It's Tuesday night. It's when I'm here, seven to nine p.m. Pacific. Last week, and I've got this. I got this catch in my throat. <clears throat> Probably cancer. Um, I uh, last week I did 1980, and that is also what I'm going to do this week. That's the plan. Because um, I barely scraped the surface. I looked at all the songs that were still um, in the playlist, like that that were in the the accumulated playlist uh, from last week, like all the stuff I'd gathered. And I I just touched like the skim the top. I think I'm just gonna like like this is how I it's it's all 1980 for September, folks. That's what's happening here. It's 1980. Welcome back to 1980. <sighs> I say this a lot. It's Tuesday and it's already been a week. I don't know. I don't know what to do. Um. So here's the funny thing. So. A band that was a moderately successful band in 1980 and got more successful as the 80s went on and then and like became ubiquitous and their lead singer was somebody you couldn't get away from, uh, just started their farewell tour. And one has to believe that this band means it. This is not Kiss or The Who or any number of these flunkies who keep saying, oh yeah, we're, we're quitting and, and that's just a clever way to get you to buy tickets, right? I think this is for real because Genesis started their farewell tour and I saw a little video clip. Phil Collins does not look good. Like the description in the headline for the article was said a frail looking. He looks like he's about to die. And you know, he's somewhat of a despicable human being and he was a he was a guy who he was he was a presence in popular music that you, you kind of just wanted to shut up and go away. But I don't know, it just doesn't seem fair to, to he looks like he's withering. Um so uh um so Phil, I hope I hope you're going to be all right. I I hope this is just like you know, you you just don't age well or something like that, but damn, mortality.
else fell away The shrieking of nothing is giving Just pictures of chap girls in synthesis And I ain't got no money And I ain't got no hands But I'm hoping to kick Because that it is glowing Ashes to ash and fuck to fuck it We know Major Tom's a junkie Strung out in heaven's high Hitting at all time low She was before the tea. 
Yeah, that's right. I play Yes on my show. What are you going to do about it? Uh, yeah, that was Yes. Does it really happen from the drama album? Uh, first concert I ever saw in the round was Yes on that tour. And it was great. And I talked about last week how 1980 is like this fence that sits between a couple of eras in um, popular music. You know, on the one side of the fence, you have the 1970s, which were ruled by a certain kind of slickly produced music. Um, in particular, late 70s, outright owned by, by progressive rock. Uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Um, yes. Um, just trust me on this one. It, it, it was either prog rock or prog rock light, which I would call like electric light orchestra. ELO was like prog rock light or Chicago also kind of prog rock light um 70s were owned by those and i mean that by in in terms of oh and pink floyd who sold records who sold out big old concerts i mean emerson lake and palmer had the biggest touring production at that point in the history of music it may actually be the biggest because i think what they proved is yeah you don't want to do it this big it sucks it's not fun. You've taken the the joy and the fun out of playing um, and just substituted this like logistics nightmare that rivals uh, D-Day landings or something like that. So 
Yeah, so you've got that on the one side of the fence. On the other side of the fence, you have like the new wave synth pop, um, more slickly kind of um, produced the new wave British metal, that kind of thing that comes in. And and also like kind of wider acceptance for punk rock. Um, never, never get a hit, but, but, you know, more widely accepted. So... You got that on the other side of the fence, and and nineteen eighty is this funny year where you see a bunch of artists trying to span the gap, so to speak. Uh, yes, reconfigured themselves with two members of the Buggles for that drama record. Um, I'm like one of two people I know who loves that record. Um, most Yes fans don't care for it much. Um, or will admit they care for it. I I love it. I think it's one of their best, and uh, I know at least one other person who feels the same way. So it it's interesting because it's still fully a yes record. It's still fully a progressive rock record, but there's also just these these kind of more um, edgy elements, uh, for lack of a better term, that are that are brought in. Um, and you got Kate, Kate Bush before that with Babushka, which is funny. Okay. So like my daughter is a teenager and her favorite song is the Pina Colada song by Rupert Holmes. Um, and we talk, we talked over and over and over again about how horrible the lyrics in that song are. It's, it's a song about two people, uh, attempting to cheat on each other through the classified ads and then discovering, Oh, ha <laughs> ha. It's you all along. Oh, ha ha. Let's just go have fun. It's terrible. Um, but also really funny. Babushka is kind of the same lyrical conceit, only darker and creepier. Um, and, and Kate Bush was another one of those artists who, like, she never, she didn't really start to get any significant attention in the United States until, like, the, like, I think, I, I want to say, like, 86, 87. Um, and even then, not that much because she's, uh, the story goes, she's absolutely incapable of flying on an airplane. And so touring the United States for her as a, as a performer or even doing promotional stuff like showing, being on the tonight show or whatever, she just, it was not going to happen. So mostly she's a European and a, and a British artist, but, but she sort of bridged that gap between the prog rock thing and, and got into more of the like um more progressive sort of modern pop and then before that david bowie with ashes to ashes from his scary monsters record which is kind of the last record that bowie makes where he's trying to challenge anybody because the next thing that comes out is uh the whole uh let's dance thing where you know, if you listen, and if you listen to Let's Dance carefully, if you listen closely to that record, you will hear there's still a ton of art and innovation going into the, the production of the record. But the songs feel more conventional. They feel more like conventional pop songs, and even if they really aren't, but they, they feel that way. Nice trick, Dave. Um, but to me, funny story about Scary Monsters was... Um, for my birthday uh, in December of 1980, um, I had a birthday party at my house. All my friends, and like I'm a young teen, and I invite a bunch of my friends, and everybody knows what to get me. Like nobody brought me anything other than records, right? And I was so 
this will shock you as a listener to this program. I was very opinionated about music back in 1980. And um, so everybody knew what to get me. What was funny is they didn't converse with each other. So I got three copies of Scary Monsters for, for my birthday that year. I was pleased. I wanted the record. And then I had two to like return to the record store and trade in for stuff I didn't get. But I got a lot of cool records that day. I was pretty excited about that. Genesis started us off. Uh, I mentioned the Phil Collins looks rough. Um, Turn It On Again was kind of the first Genesis song. That and, and Misunderstanding to me were the first Genesis songs where they were actually trying to be a li- little bit more mainstream. And Turn It On Again has a little bit of that new wavy vibe to it. Um I can remember actually going to see them as well in the 80s and the number of shows that they opened the show with that song. It's a great song. It's a great set opener for a live show. It's a fantastic set opener for a live show. Um, And, you know, they were one of the first bands to realize nobody wants to look at us. Let's spend a lot of money on some lights. Um, And they had this very cool setup. Um, They ditched it. I think I saw it on two legs of the same tour and then they ditched it and they never did it again where they had these giant mirrors that were suspended and controlled by these um uh motorized uh armatures and so not only did they have their computerized lighting which was revolutionary for live performance at that time but they had these computer controlled automated mirrors and they could have the lights play off the mirrors and everything and it, it was it was freaking epic um and 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 unlike anything else I had seen up to that point, they were a good live band. I'm kind of tempted. I kind of want to uh, farewell tour. Do I want to go see it? Do I want to see Phil Collins sitting in a, in a chair for two hours? <laughs> Will that just make me very sad? I don't know. So anyway, on the other side of the fence, you had a lot of other stuff going on, and this is one of the other things that was going on. Um, And now for something completely different.
I can hear the best cutting-edge internet radio? Nope. Nope. Who's more famous is a billion million? 
So it's funny, you know, every once in a while, the like the uh, zeitgeist jibes here on Radio Nope. Um, Chris Williams, the operative uh, just before me, they were talking about you um, too. And, um, you know, and I, I, my apologies, my apologies. I'm busy getting ready. I'm not paying attention to who I'm listening to talk. And so I'm listening to that and I'm, I, I'm not clear on who he was interviewing. So, Chris, big apologies from Joe Public. But your guest mentioned that song, Out of Control, by U2. Um, it is a standout song from their debut album, Boy. And I was having a conversation not all that long ago with somebody from a generation who is not my own, whose only knowledge of U2 is uh, Vertigo and... Um, one like that's it oh and maybe where the streets have no name and i was horrified and i admonished this youngster he's not all that young i'm just hella old this youngster to go and seek out boy and october the first two u2 records because there's formative shit in there um and it's great it's not like you're listening to um the roots of what would become great. It's great out the gate, amazing stuff. And um, to only know what they did in their autumn years, uh, <laughs> that's just it's, it's just criminal to me. You, 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 if you like that, you really should go back and see what you think of, of, of where they started off. Um, that's kind of my point there. So, yeah. Before that, Adam and the Ants with Killer in the Home from the Kings of the Wild Frontier LP. Um, That's always been my favorite song off that record. And you're saying, Joe, Adam and the Ants is uh, kid music. Okay. So, I'm going to tell you a little story about um, who's, who's involved in that record. There's two people who you ought to know about involved in that record. One is a guy named Chris Hughes. Um, and no matter what your opinion of Tears for Fears is, um, uh, recognizing that they were like one of the first bands of their kind to have a monster hit in the United States. Um, and guess who co-wrote that hit? Everybody Wants to Rule the World. That was Chris Hughes, one of the drummers playing on that record 
um, Kings of the Wild Frontier. Also a gifted record producer and songwriter in his own right. And also a guy by the name of Marco Peroni. And Marco Peroni is a... He's a he's a guy. If you're into punk rock, you need to know about him. Um, he was uh, brought into the spotlight as the first guitar player in Susie and the Banshees. Um, back when that was a band that included a drummer by the name of Sid Vicious, um, and he played with them at their very first gig, at the 100 Club uh, Punk Rock Festival in London, and. Um, yeah, Marco didn't just disappear into the woodwork, or the bush, the bushes when uh, the Banshees decided they they wanted different. When Susie and and Steve Severin decided they wanted different people in the band, push those two guys aside. I don't blame them on Sid. Sid couldn't play anything, but Marco was a is a gifted musician. So maybe he was too gifted, and they didn't want to have anybody that that was that intimidating in their band. So Marco Peroni goes on to become a member of Adam and the Ants. And I'm going to just cite this statistic. Uh, Peroni and Adam worked together and sold more than 18 million records worldwide, scoring number one records in Australia, Republic of Ireland, Germany, Greece, Sweden, Israel, and Japan, as well as the United Kingdom. 18 million records worldwide. There's not a lot of people who've done that. And Marco was the co-writer of all those songs. Um, And then what does he do? Oh my goodness. He is the co-writer and guitar player on basically all of Sinead O'Connor's records. So there you go. Sinead O'Connor. And whatever you think of her, uh, actually... What you should think of her is you should have listened to her back in the day because she was right. Um, but but whatever you think of her now, you have to recognize the massive talent and the gift. And and those first two albums of hers, um, Lion and the Cobra and I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, are just fantastic records. And Marco Peroni was a key element in that. So, no... Adam and the Ants is not candy fluff floss. You should go back and you should listen to those records. The sonically amazing, innovative, cool. Uh, there's nothing else. Nothing else like them. Yeah. And before that, a band who would have spit on Adam and the Ants, uh, The Clash with Magnificent Seven. Um, I always felt like the fact that so many music writers wanted to insist that if you didn't like The Clash, there was something wrong with you uh, hurt them. Um, because they were, they made some of the most amazing records uh, of all time, and they were uh, a band that very much mattered. But I think calling them the only band that matters kind of put a target on their backs. It's kind of unfortunate. I actually know people to this day who hate The Clash because music critics overstated how good they were. So there. A band nobody overstates how good they are before that, Motorhead, because Lemmy equals God. There you go. Shoot you in the back. Um, Got to play a song that just opens with him saying, you know, you, you just got to play it. it just, I, Lemmy. And before that, Lemmy's favorite band, the Ramones, with Rock and Roll High School. Um, not the Ramones' finest moment, in terms of their albums, um, working with Phil Spector sounds like a good idea for a band that's that's 
basically uh, owes so much to girl groups. Um, but no, it was not a good idea. Um, one of their worst records. A couple of good songs on there, but yeah, generally not good. And The Dam started us off with Hit or Miss from their Black Album. I told you there was another side to that fence, folks. I told you. No, but you would not listen to me. I'm Joe Public. This is The Public Record. Tuesday night, 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific. I was checking the uh, baseball scores. I haven't checked back since I got on the mic. Uh, Dodgers, Rockies tied up. Giants, Padres tied up. If I didn't have the show to do, I would be sitting and flipping back and forth between the two games on my TV. That's what I'd be doing. Yeah. I hope you appreciate it. We got us a pennant race, man. Anyway, I'm going to take a breath, calm down a little bit. Um, so, okay. All right, I'm just going to play it.
Which internet radio station has the guts to break all the rules of radio and put a plosive P at the end of their name? Radio Nope.
I learned uh, on the radio in college has one of the longest fade outs ever in the history of music. It's one of those things of like normally a fade out is like five, six seconds. This one's like 15. It's nuts. It might even be longer than that. Anyway, not a problem for me. I can visually see it. But back then, back in the day, I'm just looking at the record. I'm watching the needle progress, and I'm hoping I get it right. Not so much at, like if I played it at the end of a set, like that one, but like in the middle of a set, that's a great way to create what sounds like dead air to somebody who has their radio turned down. <sighs> Madness, baggy trousers. Uh, before that, Devo with Whip It. I could have played a whole bunch of other songs off that album, but you know what? Everybody just wants to hear Whip It, so, you know, give the people what they want. Uh, the Vapors, Turning Japanese, a song, as I, I've played this song before, and I think I have said this exact same thing. You could never, ever make this song today. No way you could do it. I mean, you could do it. It wouldn't get played on the radio. Not like Turning Japanese by The Vapors, which was like a top 10 song on the radio, at least around where I lived. Oh my God. Actually, and I have to I have to remark, uh, I had a friend in high school, um, junior high and high school, uh, Mario 
Ishii Hernandez, um, who is half Japanese and um, half Mexican. And uh, Mario, oh my God, every dumb, every dumb racially tinged put down that boys can make towards each other. Mario heard them all. He heard them all. All just think of all the stereotypes that we could throw at him, and he had them all thrown at him. Uh, yeah, ha ha on all of us because the dude actually made something of himself. Um, he was briefly a fairly significant pop star in Japan. So there. <laughs> Because he speaks Japanese, right? So he could go over there and like sing, you know, songs in English and be all, you know, exotic looking for the Japanese market, which they dig, and then also speak Japanese when he was being interviewed or when he was talking between songs. So hooray for Mario. Um, but yeah, we like used to like make turning Japanese jokes at Mario. And yeah, I think he hit me at least once over that before that. And, and well, he should have before that Alice Cooper with clones. Um, this would be in the period of Alice Cooper's life in which, uh, if you ask him, you know, what was it like during that time of your life? Um, Alice, he would say, I have no idea. (laughs) And that's not all that funny. He really, he, yeah. Wow. Um, he took alcoholism to entirely new heights or lows. And um, that the album uh, Special Forces that, that that song was on, or no, Flesh Fashion that that was on, the song, and the album Special Forces that followed it, he's basically said, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, I was not consciously aware of what was happening. Clones is a great song, song though. Um, like, for me as a musician, uh, if you listen to the stuff that I write, um, <laughs> there's like stupid amounts of influences from that flushed fashion LP and the song clones that are all over everything I write. Yeah. Okay. So before that, we got two songs paired together. I started the set off with the B 52s in private Idaho. And then I played Yoko Ono from the John Lennon and Yoko Ono double fantasy album came out, uh, like November of 1980. And, um, the story goes that one of the reasons John Lennon decided to make another John and Yoko album was because he was listening, uh, he was just listening to stuff on the radio and he heard the B-52s and he said something to the effect of, hey, Yoko, the world caught up with us. I think we can make another record. Um, he's not, he was not far off the mark, but still that song is unpleasant to listen to. <laughs> so my apologies to all of you. Um, uh, growing up, um, in high school, I had this friend, uh, who threw parties when his parents would be out of town and regularly people would like pass out and sleep over. And, um, he needed to clear the building right before the folks got home so he could clean up. And, uh, um, we put on the li- side, I think it's side two of live peace in Toronto which is basically Yoko in a bag howling into a microphone while the band makes random music behind her. And we put that record on and blasted on the stereo. And, and you've never seen teenagers with hangovers move faster than that in your entire life. So pro tip, you need to clear room. Side two, live piece in Toronto. John Lennon, Yoko Ono and the Plastic Ono Band. You can just file that away. 
I don't recommend you go listen to it just to check it out. I think you just keep it on a special playlist because now it's all on playlist. You don't even have to buy the record. Just keep it on a special playlist that's the Get the Hell Out of My House playlist. There you go. You're welcome. I'm Joe Public. You're listening to The Public Record here on Radio Nope. Uh, wow. How did, how, how did it get to be that time already where the time where i'm trying to fit stuff in uh okay so i I talked last week about um like bands like corporate rock bands like journey and foreigner um that tried to get some semblance of like modern uh sound into their music meaning by by which we mean new wave and it's kind of funny it's like it, it also went to haircuts right because like Journey all had like okay Neil Schoen perfect example Neil Schoen of Journey up until 1980 dude had the fro of all afros like he had the gigantic maxi fro of all time and you come into once you get into their Escape and Beyond he's got he's wearing like the headband he's got the John McEnroe going on seriously like there was there's guys who had that look. Um, he had it. Uh, Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits sported the McEnroe. Um, and also the guitar player and singer in this next band were full on McEnroe with their look.
Radio Nope. Oh, I think that you're in for a whole lot of 
All right. 
guys earlier at the consumer truck and you were eating your ice cream like little boys and I thought those guys aren't so tough they're eating ice cream what a bunch of swell guys I saw you eating ice cream pal oh don't you deny it you were eating an ice cream cone you were eating an ice cream cone oh you're bad now you're bad now but you're eating an ice cream cone and I saw you radio nope ice cream eating motherfucker
loud. <laughs> I just had to do that. I couldn't help myself. From possibly... Okay. My favorite record of 1980. I haven't played anything from... Yet. Maybe I'm saving that for next week. Last, The last show of September be the last 1980 show I do. Uh, for a while, anyway. Yeah, I'm saving my favorite record for the last. But that one's my second favorite. Black Sabbath, Heaven and Hell. I maintain the most, most metal record made ever. Most metal. Like, there's stuff that's more thrashy, and there's stuff that's more, like, doomy, but that's the most metal. It is, there's none more metal. And, and you can argue with me about it, and you're wrong. So there. Uh, before that, Scorpions with the Zoo. I mean, come on, I'm going to go back. Running James Dio invented the, the devil horn thing that metal bands do. And also, there's, it's Black Sabbath with Ronnie James Dio. It can't be more. It can't be more metal. There's nothing. There's none. None more metal. Anyway, before Black Sabbath, Scorpions with the Zoo, uh, Van Halen did "Take Your Whiskey Home." Um, yeah, there's like bigger songs I got to play. Could have played off "Women and Children First. That's my favorite one. That's my favorite one. Because it's, it's got all of the things that make the David Lee Roth era of Van Halen right. You know, you've got that DLR swagger in there. And you've, and you've just also got the, everything else that makes Van Halen great. Great guitar solo, drumming's fantastic, Michael Anthony's backing vocals. It's just, yeah. Aces, man. Just aces. Judas Priest before that, Breaking the Law. Uh, what can you say, you know? That song pretty much created a whole genre of music. Like the the album, um, the uh, um, oh, and I am I am stupid blanking on it, and I'm gonna so I'm gonna look because, and that's lame. I should not be looking. I should be like aware and stuff, Mister Mister Public. Oh yes. Yes, uh, British Steel. That whole that album invented a genre of music. No lies told, right there. Invented it. The new wave of British metal. Um, they're like Jews Priest had done okay up to that point. They'd done okay. They made some good records, but that record's great, and it made everybody want to make a record that sounded like that one. So there you go. There's like a whole herd of stuff that follows plus the video is hilarious because they they not only made a really cheap music video but they also included elements that were about what was going on in the um night the like the metal nightclub scene in in the uk at the time so yeah check that out on youtube um before that jake isles man with comeback um i had this running list of uh songs that uh, rock bands recorded that uh, was their token disco song and that is Jay Giles Band's token disco song because it's got the four on the floor thing going on yeah yeah and Loverboy started us off with Turn Me Loose because uh, gotta have the McEnroe's <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about I can't help you go like Google John McEnroe uh, tennis, 1970s, 
Um, you'll get like a photograph of a guy with like one of the worst haircuts ever um, with a sweatband on his head um, to keep sweat running into his eyes while he played tennis. And, and then like Google Mark Knopfler, Mike Reno, um, and Neil Schoen, uh, 80s. And you will see what I'm talking about. This was like, how did John McEnroe's style become a rock style? That's what I don't know. Although John rock, John McEnroe was hella punk rock um, within the context of tennis. He was, he was hella punk rock. And, and one of my favorites. Still one of my favorites. I'm Joe Public. I'm out of here. I'm going to play like one more song because I got, I got one more song to play for you. Oh, and it's a good one. It's a, it's a, it's a epic good one. So, um, so a lot of tragedy that, um, surrounded the year 1980, uh, John Lennon was murdered. Um, and, uh, you know, sh- shortly before that Bon Scott had died. Um, and this guy, the drummer in this band died and left us with no more of one of the greatest bands ever. This is Led Zeppelin. I'll see you next week, folks. Like a star that can't wait for another